Howdy, everybody. Welcome to the show. If you're watching it on YouTube, enjoy the ad-free version, which are always ad-free on YouTube. Hop on over to YouTube if you're just listening to this. It's a fun time. You get to see stuff. I know a lot of people just have it on on their phone on YouTube, so they can pop in, take a take a look at how my beard's coming in or whatever, or see uh, see what the the guest looks like or a, a way that we react to um, uh, you know some aspect of a conversation or whatever. You know, so it adds a little bit, but you don't have to like have your focused attention on it every single moment but um guys have been a little encouraged lately i have to say I, I talk a little bit about everything that's happening um in the world at the end of this i was going to do it as in the intro and then i just got so long-winded who knew that could happen um and uh and so i put it at the end but uh i i've been getting i've been getting such wonderful feedback um uh, from you get and I also just I, I've been there's been getting some more downloads I feel like we're we're starting to get a little bit of traction and boy would it be lovely if more people if it's if that's an indicator that just more people are getting uh, interested in 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 science it doesn't just I you know I'm not the only game in town um, and and so it's small sample size here but I I did ask around to other science podcasters back in the summer, and boy, I was discouraged that if I thought if ever there was a time people would start getting interested in science, it'd be during a global pandemic and when there's a insane science deniers as president shouting his mouth off about all sorts of nonsense, and uh, and it was really discouraging. And I've been encouraged lately. So 2021, off to a good start, um, off to an interesting start for me personally. The country, whew, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end of the show. This, this interview was recorded months ago. Um, but uh, I, I hope all of you are uh, safe and well out there. And, uh, yeah, uh, check out me babbling at the end of the show about some, some things I had, had fun, uh, adding a little extra commentary. Uh, all right. Enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am former stand-up comedian. <laughs> if that's an occupation again, then I'll be a stand-up comedian again. Uh, Shane Moss, and more importantly, the reason why you're watching is I am also a science enthusiast with this podcast, Here We Are, where each week I interview another academic about some cool, interesting area of research. Usually, a lot of topics that we haven't discussed on the show before, and that's why I have today's guest 
Beth Livingston. Beth, could you introduce yourself to people? Because believe me, no guest wants my introduction. I will <laughs> fumble. I'll get I get nervous. There's something about introducing <laughs> people it's that an like art. It is. I and I'll never. I've just given up on mastering that art. I've given. I've done this podcast for six years. I've been like, you know what. I, I know your strengths and weaknesses. There you go. <laughs> like you know, self knowledge. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, I'm um, I'm Beth Livingston, as you said, and I am a uh, an assistant professor at the University of Iowa Tippy College of Business, and I've been here uh, three years now. I spent eight years before that at Cornell University in upstate New York, um, and I got my PhD at the University of Florida. And was um, did my undergrad and MBA at University of Kentucky. So I kind of been all around the South and then up the East Coast. And now I'm a Midwesterner. So nice, cool. welcome. Yeah, thanks. It's been fine. It's good. <laughs> and um, my research is on gender and stereotyping and on work and family. So this whole COVID thing right up my research alley because yeah. a lot of people have been like, oh, work family conflict. That's a thing. Could you tell us more about it, please? Beth? So, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I don't even remember <laughs> what it was of yours that I saw on Twitter, but gender wage gap. Is that what yeah. it, it, it was? Some of that. I know that's a, a, a large part of your research, but I, I think yeah. that also at the time, I, I don't know. But it, but anyway, I, I was uh, I was really interested in in um, in what you had to say, and then I looked at a bunch of your papers. And it looked like um, some uh, some pretty cool stuff, and I, I think that one of the um, one of the incredible things that will I have my fingers crossed that because <laughs> COVID keeps on disappointing me, this world and humanity <laughs> keep on disappointing me a bit, <laughs> but I still I still believe that this is this unique incredible opportunity in a lot of ways to reassess ourselves, to reassess businesses, to reassess our society, and an opportunity to uh, to utilize this as a catalyst for, um, for uh, integrating a lot of our modern knowledge into creating um, systems that are uh, pretty outdated. Look, I share your optimism, but <laughs> I am also an overly optimistic person. I'm the glass half full of sparkles type of gal. So really, yeah, I'm overly. We'll optimistic. balance each other yes, out. Then. That's good. Yeah, you know, it's it's complimentary fit. But no, I I think there's a lot of us that are hopeful that some of the things we've been saying to companies, for instance, is that now they're willing to listen because mm -hmm. they're kind of forced to. So, I mean, we're trying to take any positive you can out of this and say, oh, well, listen to us. You know, remember that stuff about work-family conflict? Remember that stuff about childcare being important to your workers' productivity? <laughs> Let's talk about that now. Um, diversity and inclusion work, all of this. And so, Well, I don't my know. kid's sitting on my lap in in uh, the, our Zoom conference meeting. Can we now have a talk? <laughs> my kid's upstairs being bribed not to come down. So that's a thing, yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's... Uh, 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 that that should be something that 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 um, the majority of people are on board with. That um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, low hanging fruit, right? 
Yeah, I, w I would think so. So, uh, so what's uh, kind of what got you into this field of research originally? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, when I was an undergraduate and um, in my master's program at University of Kentucky, I was really a gung-ho, enthusiastic type of young woman. So all the things I wanted to do and, you know, did them very, very well and hadn't really ever been told I couldn't do anything, which is a privilege I know, um, until I kind of ran up against the whole, hey, so Beth, um, maybe, you know, owning your own football team isn't going to happen for you. Maybe <laughs> being, you know, working in uh, professional sports is not quite the path for you, which is what I kind of wanted to do. I wanted to manage and do sports marketing. Um, and so I started running up against these these things that had to do with my gender, and I was really adamantly opposed to that. Um, and it, as is my way, I started reading about it. And so I asked a couple of my professors, you know, you have stuff I can read? And they're like, sure do. Here, read these things. And um, I realized that of all the years that people have been studying gender and women in business, there were still so few answers and so many limitations and so many questions that were left unanswered for me. Um, and I was fortunate to have professors to say, you'd be really good at this professor thing. And I'd never considered it as a job before. It was just, I don't know, I, I guess I never considered it as a career path. They just were professors that were there to teach me. I didn't think how they got there. Um, and they said, maybe you should consider it. So I did. And here I am. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, I thought it, for me, I, I've always been a know-it-all kind of kid. Like, I like to know everything. And if I don't know the answer, I find it. Um, and this was a job that you don't just learn what other people did. You get to create your own knowledge for the first time. Like the first time anybody knows this one thing is when you create it. Uh, and that's a really cool thing to be in charge of. And I also do not take, I, I do not like take no for an answer very well. So I don't, you know, I kind of am the person who thinks I can figure <laughs> this out. I can do it. And so the typical corporate, like climbing that ladder wasn't going to fit me very well. And so, yeah. um, this has, academia has its own issues, but it fits me a little bit better, I think, in terms of how I like to work. <laughs> and so gender started with gender. And as I started to study why women weren't, you know, weren't getting to the place, because I was unwilling to accept the idea that we have these fundamental differences in the things that we like that have to do with what we're good at. Like, I mean, I just looked at my own life and I would say, I'm interested in all these things. There's so much variation in the women I know and the men I know in terms of what we like and what we're good at. So all of these differences can't possibly be explained by, well, women just aren't good at math. Well, yeah. I mean, come on, that, that's a huge variation to be explained by that. And I wasn't convinced by the evidence. And, and as I did more research, I was like, well, it seems to be a lot of this whole work and family thing. And there's a lot of these assumptions that when women have babies, all of a sudden it's, well, farewell to you, dear human capital, we shall invest in somebody else. And I wasn't willing to accept that either. And so my interest in sort of gender and work family and stereotypes all rose up together. And I'm one of probably maybe one of the few academics who's still researching the same stuff that they intended to research back in like 2004. So that's kind of cool. That's amazing. Yeah. We we have uh, very different paths. I um I don't believe in myself, and I <laughs> I I look into why that is. I look into <laughs> I, I I'm very into studying why I screw up so much. I didn't say I don't screw up. I'm just really good at glossing over it and moving on to the next. I take no's for answers all the time. It's usually me suggesting the, the no. Throw, throwing in the towel is usually my first action and only 
after that doesn't work do i do i start trying so uh that's uh that's that's very impressive that uh <laughs> that you have uh such determinism and see i love that word i like yeah a lot of people call it stubborn and naive but determinism i'm gonna take that one as my positive euphemistic way to refer to myself <laughs> yeah i mean i do i I go back and forth. I have to say because I'm like one of the I'm one of these people. I like I've always um I was raised a, a wholesome Midwestern family that where it's like nothing but pep talks and stuff all of the time and believing in yourself and like self-helpy stuff and motivation. And I just had a strong aversion <laughs> to to all of it um my <laughs> my my whole life. Um and and so uh so so I swung the other way and I wrongly like romanticize like depression and like giving up. It's not like way, way more. Can um, we talk about the books you read as a child? The ones you're, no, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've, uh, I, I've, I don't know why, how I've gotten as far as <laughs> so I look back at the things I've done. I'm like, oh, I guess I've accomplished a bit. Never once yeah. believed in myself. <laughs> not, not, not once. Yeah. So maybe we should reframe. <laughs> There's a lot of variance around the self-esteem, self-efficacy to performance link. So I think really? you know, it's okay. Yeah. It's a lot of variance. So you're perfectly normal. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of people don't believe in themselves and still do great. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, uh, so there's a few things going on with gender. There's like, there is, um, uh, uh, that I often think of I, as, as someone who, um, speaking of my Midwestern upbringing, I didn't really buy into the kind of like macho tough, like pull up your, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like hunting and all these things are the i'm not against any of it but i i just uh, like rambo was was like very influential on my friend group as a kid and i it always just seemed very cartoonish and silly that that's like what was the, the idea of what a what a man um should be and there's also like very very silly like barbie doll ideas of like what a what yeah, a girl yeah, should for be sure. so, yeah do you think that some of that's uh, some of those ideas of these uh, male female archetypes are just sort of um, it's always just taking like the most base level, like, this is what a guy is. This is what a girl is. And then, um, and, and then amplified to kind of a, a, um, cartoonish caricature. caricature. Yeah. 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 I mean, but our caricatures tell us a lot, right? Like, you know, because even the most extreme still pull us towards that sort of thing. Well, I'm not a Rambo, but but Rambo is built upon something, right, that somebody believed. The same with Barbie, right? Like, Barbie is built upon some things that we have kind of mutually agreed without even saying that we've agreed that we believe in it. You know, like, I can go, I'm a go-it-alone type of guy. I, you know, I can, I'm a leader. And by leader, I mean, I tell people what to do when I'm loud. And, you know, I don't, you know, I don't show emotion unless it's pure raw anger, right? That sort of stuff. And, you know, and, and that may seem a caricature when you take it to Rambo, but, the, the truisms in terms of what our society values, you see it still, right? Like, look at the people we think, you know, oh, that looks like a leader. I boss people around. I tell them what to do. You know, I, I yeah. show no emotion but anger. Every emotion I have is channeled through anger, right? And, you know, you see that as being the sort of masculine ideal. And 
for women with Barbie, it's, I look perfectly put together at all times, right? And I show perfect optimism and beauty and grace at all. I mean, look, right? That is so far from being the truth, but that's what we end up valuing. And what that means is like, you know, yeah, people, and I think we kind of have these arguments at the extremes, like no one is trying to be like Rambo. No one's trying to be like Barbie. I'm like, but yeah, let's break that down a little bit more, though, because there are still assumptions that led to those ideas being popular. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they and they hurt us mostly because I feel like they constrain our creativity. They constrain our imagination of what we could be and what we want to be by saying by kind of setting our response set early. So yeah. it's not like and, I get a free choice at, of everything. And look at us like a complete revert. Here I have this perfectly manicured uh, beard and you are just like filled with rage. It's like, yeah, it's right. <laughs> like so Thank clearly. You. See, we've so, just totally flip flopped so it. You're perfectly put together <laughs> and I am pure unadulterated <laughs> anger at everything. So, yeah, I just put a smile on. <laughs> <laughs> um how much so you you should know i'm a i'm a huge fan of evolutionary psychology and biology and um and i i i think that it's a very especially evolutionary psychology is an exceptionally new and flawed uh field in a number of ways and makes a lot of assumptions and everything I, I, I imagine you probably have like, a, a, a um, some thoughts. mixed feelings. <laughs> I have thoughts. Yeah. Well, I mean, I too am a fan of evolutionary biology. Let me just put that, that, that's a straight, you know, I do believe in evolution yeah. and I do believe that the idea that we look into our history, our anthropology, our you know, our sociology and our historical sociology to try to find out what traits were beneficial to people to succeed and how that ended up sorting into the differences we see today. I think those are really critically important questions and some things that psychology don't, doesn't always do very good at, right? Like, how do we get to this point? Um, how, why these things? Like, why anger? Like, why? Why, you know, blonde hair, right? Like those are interesting questions to ask and important ones that can't be divorced sort of from the history and the anthropology of who we are as people. My quibble with evolutionary psychology is in a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's, there are assumptions that are, that are consistent with lots of other possible explanations. Mm -hmm. And when we simplify to, well, this is just, you know, survival of the fittest. And this happened because it was the most efficient way for our genes to propagate. First of all, like, there's a lot of random chance about that sort of stuff, right? There's not in this sort of determinism from above. They're very difficult to falsify, like, in terms of, well, could you say that it could have gone a different direction? We didn't see other traits, like, that died off. Like, we weren't able to see the paths and the branches that happened. Um, and I also think it simplifies to this thing that just fundamentally I don't like, which is essentialism. Like, the idea, well, this is true because it's meant to be true because it's better to be true. And we're done investigating it and we shall move on to another thing that might be true. That's not true of all evolutionary psychologists. And there's a lot of really good work being done to try to try to lay it within the, the work that's been done already in these sort of disciplinary fields. And I find it interesting. Like, I think they're asking, in a lot of ways, you're asking interesting questions. We just might have different frames to answer those questions, I think. I'm more of a contextualist in terms of, let's look at the social psych, the interactional, the way we create meaning together and systems reflect 
the people who build them and the history of what we do and how, where does psychology fit within that and the decisions because uh, the people I'm studying psychologically are within companies and those companies, I mean, those companies have very strong cultures and histories and stories that they tell and systems in place. And you can't divorce those people from those systems. Like you can't, it's very difficult to do. And we try to figure it out, right? Like to what is this you? What is your parents? What is your friends? What's the Midwest? Um, what's the U.S.? What's this time in history? I mean, we're constantly trying to figure out the relative impact of all those things. And so kind of simplifying down to Darwin or, you know, this is because we, a lot of those questions in the early stages were a lot of because mating, right? Which I'm like, yeah, I can see why that's an attractive sort of answer to things, but I think sometimes it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, but, but like you said, early stages, and it's a it's a it's a new field. I think that more complexity will be. I'm will looking be forward to, to, to all of that. Yeah. <laughs> comes on. I, I don't I don't think the good ones are terribly prescriptive or or using. No, that and and it's and that's what I mean by it's grown, right? Like, yeah. and I think, I think. I'm a multidisciplinary type of gal and management, what I'm in is kind of built from that tradition. Like how can we take what sociology done, ec economics is done and try to make sense of all these things together. And I think to the degree we actually wanna to try to understand people's behavior, we have to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think evolutionary psychology, if it wants to continue to grow in a way that's respected, it will continue to do that. Like what can we learn from cognitive psych? What can we learn from social psych? What can we learn? from sociology and figure out how to actually best explain human choices and human decision-making and human behavior. Um, and the more that they seek to answer those questions in a broader way, I think the more um, credible the field will continue to be. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it also, it, it, humans especially have a diverse set of uh, potential tools within their genetic makeup and and in different environments they seem to express themselves in different ways in the same way that studying animals in captivity is very limiting because they 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 might have a tendency sure. to express a certain behavior in captivity a certain behavior out in the wild humans might have a uh, uh, tendency to express one th like males and hunter-gatherer tribes dressing up and being in leaks and wearing makeup and doing all of these uh, Yeah, like, you know, it's, but that's, I think, why the anthropology is inter interesting. And one thing yeah. with academics, and this is just, I think, a byproduct of the way that academia is, is we start to study and we become increasingly siloed. Like, you're the broadest when you know the least, and that's at the very beginning of your academic journey, right? And you're starting to learn lots of things. I'm an expert in a lot of things, but I had to make trade-offs to become an expert. And I had to, because you have a limited amount of time, right, to be able to do those things. And so, you know, I think that we start to answer questions and we don't read enough as to what other people are doing. And we don't talk enough with what other people are doing. And our journals don't necessarily privilege um, multi, you know, cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary work. And so what happens is, is that we're answering questions that other people have thought about in different ways and we're not reckoning with what they've done. And so, you know, new fields have a benefit there where they can build on what's done so long as they don't think that they're reinventing something because a lot of these questions have come up. We're just now able to integrate new knowledge and ask different questions and have different methods to answer those questions. And so I think 
I think standing, realizing whose shoulders you're standing on is really important for, for all of us. Hmm. Yeah, I've uh, I've fortunately avoided becoming an expert in anything, which is uh, really it's just like a superpower of mine. I'm I, I when love people it. are like Shane, yeah, how are I'm you really such a generalist? My own choices right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, I've just never really dug into anything. It's it's worked. <laughs> it's you, worked you know, <laughs> I like I said, I'm doubting my own choices right now. <laughs> you get to be an expert in something and. And people, you know, you, you realize all the trade-offs you have to, to make to, to become an expert. And I'm like, I wish I would have, I wish I would have studied that. I wish I would have studied this. And because I am still so fascinated by what other questions, what other questions people are interested in, in studying. Yeah. I mean, it seemed one of the cool things about modern academia to, uh, and the push for I don't, I don't know if there's more or less of a push for interdisciplinary. It seems like, to me, it seems like a bigger and bigger buzzword now it than, is. It, than it was. Uh, I, I don't know if that, um, that then uh, means that it actually happens more because people like saying the word. But, uh, but it, it does seem that in, in modern academia, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for people to create almost new fields of studies and and carve out their own um uh niche you know uh, taking two different expertise and combining them into something that they don't know as much about this or this but they know the most about the combination of mm -hmm. those um two things yeah and i think the funding organizations are trying to do better about that like they're privileging you know cross-disciplinary teams and that sort of stuff but there are other structures that haven't quite caught up as much like our our publishing and our tenure and promotion stuff so there are things that need to catch up but i agree i'm seeing it more and i've been invited to more interdisciplinary teams particularly teams in sociology or in public health and said beth you know this like let's join together because you know they have a knowledge in like communication and and um things that i haven't spent time studying and i have this knowledge and together we can create new knowledge that's better um because we're not starting from you know places uh, from farther behind so to speak so I, th I do think your instinct that it's more of a buzzword now is correct. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, so let's let's get uh, let's get into your work a bit more. What okay. what's uh, what what's some of your stuff that you're you're the most excited about? Some of or some of your early work that set up the foundation of what you do or what do you it, it, the the reason why i like leaving it open ended is because i find that if i ask someone like you said you're one of the few people that started with the work that you're still doing <laughs> early on in this podcast i would ask someone about like a paper they had written 10 years ago and they're like i don't even <laughs> i don't remember, remember that, that yes yes i know i've had to do that before too where i'm like i i was i was a uh, author on that paper i have no knowledge of that i need to go back and read it um no i think so i i feel like i have a trajectory and so i'll i'll say one of the main sort of things that i realized early on in some of the research i did as a graduate student in my early career i said i was interested in gender and i do mean that not just women although i am a woman and that's of course my lens um you know, one of the things I found in my early research on the gender wage gap was that these gender differences are way more complicated than we give them credit for. And what I mean by that is 
I started, so you, when you start studying the gender wage gap, you read a lot of economics and labor econ stuff and which is cool because they're doing, you know, they often are at the cutting edge of different methodological trends and, and analytical um, sort of approaches. And so you're learning from the best on that end, but there are also things that economists don't often measure. And they don't often talk about psychological traits or, you know, ambition, you know, different sorts of things that are harder to measure. And so we in psychology do a little bit better. Well, that's a whole other conversation about our measurement crisis. But we do better at acknowledging there are things we can't measure or measure well, right, and that we need to do differently. And so what I liked was I started to do research on the gender wage gap, and I found that there were groups of men that were, you know, penalized for not meeting gender norms and they weren't paid as much as other men who met those gender norms. And mm. so what that meant is like all this time we talk about gender wage gap and you get these men, you, you, oh gosh, every YouTube video on the gender wage gap, this is not real. This is not real. And I'm like, well, maybe it's just more complicated than you want to give it credit for, right? Maybe this is something we need to study a little more. And sure enough, there are a lot of men who are also being unfairly, no matter what job they have, how many hours they worked, um, how long they've been in that job, Still, their personality traits are related to how much they get paid, and um, those men who are meeting gender norms get paid more. And those attitudes don't affect women's wages at all. So the gender wage gap is a lot smaller for men who defy gender norms, right, than those who meet them. And so what I mean by that is, like, men who hold more traditional attitudes, like that they should be the breadwinner and women should be more nurturing – or men who are more aggressive and dominant versus more humble and nicer and kinder. So those sort of gendered norms that we were kind of talking about earlier on, right? Like, what are these things that are privileged? And what I liked about that narrative was that it demonstrated how complex these were and that this shouldn't be a men versus women story, but a gender norms versus freedom from gender norm story, which I think brings us all together in a kumbaya moment, right? Um, that we all kind of, it's not men versus women in as much as it's kind of these constraining gender norms versus the lack of those. Hmm. So it's, it's a lot more complicated than just someone coming in and being like, okay, you're a female. So you get 75% of, or, or 70% of what the, the, uh, we have never argued that's what happens. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but no, yeah, but that's the thing. There are easy things to talk about, and these are complicated issues. And so when you're doing this sort of communication to the public, um, it's a, there's a lot of things that get filtered through agendas, which is fine. Like, we all have agendas. Researchers have agendas. Everybody has an agenda. Um, I like to call it a perspective. Um, but, you know, a lot of times we aren't honest about it. And so when I was presenting this research at the beginning, a lot of people, the first thing to say, well, did you think of this? Yes. We thought of hours worked. Yes. We thought of the jobs they had. Yes. We thought of how many kids they had. Like we thought of all those things because we're academics and we did our jobs well. Um, But it was really hard for people to accept the idea that it existed at all um, because they had so much invested in the idea that the world is just and fair. Um, Mm. And which, I mean, I get it. It sucks to think it's not. Um, So, yeah. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large. Deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Offer valid through 4322 or participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. I I sure wish I could break people of of that little superstition. <laughs> See, but you just what you talked about the whole like negative self talk thing that's prepared you for this your whole life. You're like I have been expecting the world to suck forever, and it does. Yeah. Yeah. Adaptive. <laughs> it was actually all of COVID was like the least amount of depression I've ever had in my life, and I'm like, oh, you got you all get to see now. Yes, see, I've been telling. Oh, so my <laughs> friends who feel like have chronic anxiety are like, you see, I am well prepared to navigate this. You are all feeling what I feel all the time, and I'm like, this yeah. is how you feel all the time. I'm so sorry, and <laughs> so yeah. But see, you've been you've been I, preparing for this your whole life. <laughs> I have been. I so. I, I I like this idea of the like uh the stereotypical um like madman man being favored in the corporate workplace over even guys that are just like like I, I like I it, it would be fun if if people actually knew um consciously the reasons why they were making choices and could articulate Boy, them great. well. And so you'd go in for a raise. Like, I'm like, sort of like a, a, a you know, n not a, actually in the workplace, I can, I can turn on an alpha ish male if I need to, but I find the whole process embarrassing. Um, but so I, I go in, I go into uh, uh, the office. I'm going to ask for a raise and the supervisor's like, we're sorry, you're just not mean enough to get to make what the other guys are. Can I are say? Making. Can I say that that sounds ridiculous because it is? But the one of the experiments that we did with one of these studies was very similar to that in that we included um, everything was the same in terms of performance. Like they had number, everything was this great performer, excellent performer. We toggled their gender. Um, but the comments, so we would pull like comments, like reviews, like your performance reviews and the words that people use, which we know people use different words for men and women. And when people use the words like he's he's nice, he's humble, um, you know, he's kind versus he's aggressive, he's assertive, he's dominant. What we found was a huge difference Men who were called dominant and aggressive were seen as promotion material, meaning they were, yeah, ready to be promoted, holding all performance constant, which suggests that there's these things, like I said, that we have unconsciously just imbibed through growing up here to say, when I think of a leader, I think of that guy who is very demanding. And, you know, I have never been a leader before, so I don't know if that's effective, but that's definitely a leader. Um, and what we know from research is it's not always effective, that actually being an effective leader is way more nuanced than uh, which anybody who's had a leader who's like that will know, right? Because you tell me this and I'm going to do the exact opposite of what you say, um, or I'm at least going to resent doing the thing you ordered me to do. So these things are more complicated, but yet we abide by them because we either don't know any better or we're making a lot of decisions in a fast amount of time or you know, fundamentally, we want to justify the fact that we're just more comfortable with him than with her, which is mm -hmm. also, I mean, if you look, people ask 
I can't remember, I think it was Pew, I don't know, one of those survey companies who asks every year, would you be comfortable with a male or a female boss? And there's still like a huge holdout of people who are like, no, don't want a woman to be my boss, like any generic woman. And mm. you're like, oh, that's cool. So yeah, I, I'm, I've never got that. I need a female boss in my life because I, I've, I'm not managing well. I, I, I wonder how much this is like, there are, uh, so, so you, you have like Dunning-Kruger, right? So you have this idea of, uh, of, uh, for, uh, for, for the listener, this kind of, um, U-shaped distribution where the, the less, um, the average person knows about a certain thing, the more confident they are in it. So you say like, Hey, do you know how gravity works? And people are like, yeah, things fall. And so they think they really know about gravity and then, and they're very confident in that. And then, then you hand them a physics book and they start reading and realize in a hurry that, that it's far more complicated, um, than it seems. And so this, uh, the confidence in how much they know about gravity drops dramatically. And then as you become an expert, the confidence starts going as you've gained mastery through experience and then you become Einstein, but basically the confidence level between Einstein and someone that's never read a physics book and gravity is probably uh, about the about the same. But the the people that are on that are high and confident in and low in um, actual knowledge, it, it's just related to like, it's, it's very difficult to know how much we don't know. That's a difficult problem for our human brain to solve. But because there's like a confidence that comes along with that. And then, and then there's unearned confidence is always just like so loud, at least, at least so when loud. men do it, so especially, I think women too, so but, loud, so but, wrong, so loud but definitely it's like, it's just so loud and, and it's always so, and they always get the first word in too, because they're like, Primacy they effects. That, like, Yes. Yeah, they have that high need for closure, so they're sure of it. They need, to, and and so then, so then it's like the the first opinion that you hear is like delivered very confidently, uh, whether it's informed or not, and then and then groupthink takes very over. Confidently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then group thing, you know, we're so yeah. these social animals, and then you go like, okay, that guy, like, I, I, I don't think that there's anything, you, you know, even in a lot of different species, when you look at like, um, oh, there's this alpha male or or something like that. They're not. It's not even. It's not why like the deer are running one way or this way. It's like the first one that takes off, the rest of the pack follows or the first one yeah, that takes yeah, off in a yeah, fish yeah. or whatever else so there's just like there's this there's this crazy combination of a lot of things that happen that that somehow then end up once in a while <laughs> putting just the most arrogant blind um uh either prideful ignorance or or just blind confidence at in charge because people are just like oh follow that sounds great let's go well, <laughs> but it's but it is true right like in times of uncertainty you know people are like i'm gonna go with the guy who seems like he knows what he's doing and i'm yeah. gonna hope that he knows what he's doing because i certainly don't feel as calm as he looks um without kind of saying well maybe you know and, and i think what we know in liter in the leadership literature suggests that you know leadership effectiveness is way more complex 
than, you know, just, you know, loud and dominant and, you know, authoritative. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more going on there in terms of what actually people need. But if you think about stereotypes of leaders, they're pretty, pretty consistent um, because I think until you've become one, it's hard for you to understand how nuanced it is. And so that can be difficult. And I think a lot of our, when we're young, who do we think of as leaders? Our teachers, they're always telling us what to do. Our coaches, they're telling us what to do and they're yelling at us. And so like you think about who we think our leaders are, or we see caricatures on television, you know, a lot of war movies and, you know, we're going to, you know, Rambo and all of that sort of stuff. Like who's, who's, they're loud and they're confident and they always have the answers. And so if you don't have the answers, that's bad, which of course we know what I want from you is not that you know the answers, but you know how to get it. Cause I'm thinking of what I want you to do to lead my business anyway. But, but those things filter in because we also see a lot of, there used to be an old adage in kind of gender and leadership literature, think manager, think male. And that's if you, if you prime people say, well, tell me a manager, they're way more likely to use the he, right? Mm. And to picture a man in their, ma- in their brain because of all this stuff. Like it's, it's comes from a place, but it's not, conf- it's not conscience in that conscious in that people are saying women can't be leaders. Men are better leaders than women. It's just that we see them. And there's a, a theory called social role theory that suggests that the more we see something, somebody embodying a role, the more we think that role should be for them. And so mm. changing the, our visual and our representation starts to change who we think can do what. Um, mm. And, you know, it's simple. It's, it's not sufficient, but it's kind of necessary for people mm. to start, like I said, freeing ourselves from those bounds of what gender norms say we can do. So, mm. you know, growing up, who did I see? I never saw any women, you know, a- as politicians that I saw. I never saw women you know, I'm trying to think, like, I thought at one point, I'm like, who was the first woman I ever looked at and was like, oh, I'd like to be like her. She's a leader. And I can't even, I can't even think of it because it just wasn't that in my life. And so I looked up to men. And so I tried to embody what they did, right? I'm going to be confident and loud, um, which I still am. But (laughs) I also realized that, you know, I, there were, I was social, and personable. And I'll, I'll say this, for example, I used to want to be a doctor, like a lot of kids, I think want to be doctors at some point in time, but I wanted to be a surgeon because I didn't want to be bored. So I wanted to do something really complex. And so I'm like, I want to be a surgeon. And then I ended up having to get surgery when I was like 11 years old on my ankle. And the surgeon I met, I was so hyped to meet him. I'm like, oh, I'm going to meet a real surgeon. I'm going to ask him everything. He's going to go through the x-rays with me. We're, I'm going to learn all this stuff because I was that kid. I'm like, I want to learn all the things. And we didn't have the internet. So I had only had books. I'm like, I need to read all the books. And he was so annoyed by me, like so annoyed, which to be fair, I was annoying. However, like he showed me no interest whatsoever. And he was so curt and so rude. I left um, after having my surgeries and I told my mom, like, I won't be a surgeon anymore. If it means being like him, I don't want to be like that because I was too social and too nice. And that's naive and 11 years old. Right. But it changed the trajectory because I, I was done. That was that career was done. Not going to do that anymore because I would have to be like him and he sucked. So, yeah, yeah. but we don't think about that. Right. And mm. you can't solve all those problems in a generation or whatever, but we can at least acknowledge them. Like mm. maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should prize people who can do lots of different things. Mm. Like you said, a jack of all trades, right? Mm. Maybe we should praise people who, you know, can, you know, kindly support other people 
maybe that's something we can value. We could choose to value that if we wanted to. Um, like, I don't think, I think if you asked anybody who their bad bosses were, 99% of people would be like, jerk, 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 didn't care, yelled at me, right? Like the same things, Mm -hmm. but yet those people keep getting promoted. Why? Mm -hmm. I can tell you why, but it's pretty clear because your company acts like it values things that it doesn't. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. What do you, what do you think about these? One one thing that drives me crazy about our world is these like weird um, imagined hierarchies that we uh, all have. I, I mean, you zoom out, and humans, to me, as as someone who loves like looking into animal behavior and say, like humans are weirdly cooperative, <laughs> like for a species, sure. yes. it's yet. Yet you you zoom in to the world that we have to exist in, and it seems like we aren't getting along very well. And and it and it I, I don't I don't get this like idea of like putting a person on t- like I don't get the idea of pre- I don't know why we have a president. It's like some weird holdover of like well we used to have kings and queens, and now we let you pick your king. Like I, I I'll never get that. I, I don't know why it's not like a panel or something like that. I I it, it just doesn't make sense to me. But it it seems the same way in in um in uh the the corporate model. To, I, I mean, I guess there's a lot of corporations with boards. Um, yeah. but but who but, makes the final decision? It's a person, often a guy. But yeah. And what and what is that? Because it's it's certainly not benefiting. This isn't just women. It's like certainly not benefiting like so many guys. <laughs> like we, there's no model in which one, one person dude. is better. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's like really well. And 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 if you look at like guys being like yeah, you, you know the the insane rates of homelessness and how many men are in prison and everything else. And then we look at. Some guys at the top would be like, "Well, that guy's got." It's it's almost like we do it to construct some ideal that's like meant to motivate us or something like like I don't know. It seems it I seems mean, like a facade to me. Well, in the extent that any sort of power structure and dominant structure is a facade, right? They're all socially created. We all create them, and a lot of it, I think, is our our kind of. Like, I don't think it's conscious and that we're like, let us elevate one person to worship them like we did in the olden days. But I do think that it comes from that same idea, which is, you know, we are, you know, always looking to make sense of our world, like why things are. And I think the idea that, first of all, we know it's easier if one person just makes the calls, right? It's harder if you have to debate and come to consensus. That's one reason why it's often better because it's harder and you have to convince people to get on your side. Um, you have to, you know, do the work uh, and those sort of but things. Look at, look at you and I solving all the world's problems together, right? Yeah, <laughs> right so now, maybe the so right easy. person at top. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> no, it, but, but that's a sort of, it, it, it's a vestige of that whole, the whole great man theory. And I'm not saying just man in the gender sense, although we were talking about that before, but the whole idea that yes, our leaders suck, but if we had the right person making all of the right authoritarian, right, we'd right, be fine. Right. Um, <laughs> right. You know, just, just we, give we him all a, the, we the We need benef- the perfect dictator. That's right. If they were just a benevolent <laughs> dictator, our life would be great. And I think, oh, again, boy. but but this is the complexity of it, right? 
people are complex. The world is complex. So our solutions will be complex. And I think both this is the the, the situation that we have. And so it's easy to critique it, but any situation, any, you know, sort of ruling leadership organizing framework for a community is going to be difficult. And I think our problem is less the one we've chosen, although it has its own problems and more that we don't allow ourselves to be creative in thinking of alternatives. Yeah. This is the way that it is. And we never kind of question it because it's hard. Um, because it means taking a risk and at our, as much as some people like to think they're like sensation seekers and jump off, I don't know things people jump off, but really people are risk averse. They don't want to do risk. You know, do you know about my background? No. Is that why, why you do you jump that? off things? I have a you whole jump- album. I have a whole album about breaking my feet from jumping off of that. Oh, okay. So that was totally <laughs> unplanned, but you're a perfect example I, I of it. A, so there you go. I, I am an No, I totally didn't know that either. Okay. Well, That's funny. segue. I thought you were, I thought you were maybe like chatting. Needling you? No, I'm not that put together at all. Which I would have loved. Um, I know. I should have just owned that, but I didn't, I didn't do that on purpose. Um... Well, well, so so you're into sports. Here's something I find myself thinking about. I'm I'm into board games. Okay, I cool. I what, what I, I like playing sports. I'm not big into watching them. I don't get that aspect of it. I don't get the tribalism of like uh, this is where I was born. So I like this. I'm more into like I like Tony Hawk because he's the best. Like I I don't I I I don't like the the the, the like. Here's a symbol. That's my in-group thing. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I've never, I've never enjoyed that. We have all um, theories about that too, you know. Yeah. And well, uh, so let me uh, just set this up for you then. So I, I think that, so one of the things that that a board game or sports does is that it it um, validates this like. Uh, uh, or, or you're you're buying into this idea of a just world meritocracy because sports are like a really pretty easy measure. That, like measuring Objective athleticism yeah. is is really a nice easy thing to measure, and and so easy by comparison. Um, and, and then you have, and then you have a zero sum game. There are board games that are cooperative, but you have this idea of like, there's a winner and everyone else is a loser. And speaking of like evolutionary psychology or biology, I don't think that's at all what most of our past ancestral life before the, in, um, agricultural revolution, I don't, I think that there was people that were like higher or lower in a hierarchy or whatever, but I think it was much, much more egalitarian and balanced, I would think. It was probably deeply yeah, unfair groups, to one or two people. Smaller family groups. But yeah. yeah. And, and so, so yeah, I, I don't know. Thought, thought, thoughts on that and people misunderstand. Because what, what I'm after is not like, is this fair? I, I think when people hear this conversation, it's like, it's just about like, well, you know, it's only fair that a lady or minorities get to have a job. All right, let's all agree. And let's be, this to me is about like, what is the most effective uh, strategy? And I, I, I think excluding 
half of the population of of earth or or whatever else is 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 just not uh not not the best model for doing um most most businesses yeah so there's lots of theories around that and i think what's interesting is you know i do like sports but when i was an undergraduate i remember um so I danced for our college dance team at the University of Kentucky. So I was like mm-hmm. all up in the spirit squad stuff, right? So all up in it. <laughs> and, we're um, very different people. We are We very get along great. People. See, this is great. Like we were just, you know, kumbaya moments. Like I said, it's really great. <laughs> um, but I was doing research during one of them and, and um, one of the games. And so I had to like do a survey from one of my senior classes. And I was like, I'm going to gather surveys at the game because I'll be in my uniform. And so people will be more likely to fill out the survey right you know relying on that and it worked um but one of the things that i looked at was i gave them a survey before the game and then what happened during the game and i gave them people a survey after to see if there was a difference based on what happened during the game and it happened to be this really like big loss we like lost like seven overtimes and it was really really dramatic um and one of the things i found was like you know i was looking for whether people were more likely to use the words we won right? Um, mm-hmm. Meaning versus they won or we lost versus they lost. So uh, yeah. In, yeah, in psychology, they call that kind of like, I want to bask in this reflected glory, right? Yeah. I I can't achieve that. So I want to, but I want to still feel the same glory as being part of that group that achieves things. Um, and there's a theory for that called social identity theory, which is pretty cool in social psych. And, that, and it's true. It's the idea is we all have like tons of these identities and some of them are personal like i'm kind i am you know certain things that are i'm smart or whatever um and some are social so they have social meaning like i'm a midwesterner like that has a meaning that people identify with what it means um and those identities you identify with them more or less strongly depending on what context you're in so you and i can bond over midwest right yeah we can talk about it or you know if i'm in a group if i'm the only woman and i walk into a room full of men i'm suddenly very aware of my social identity of gender right because there's the comparison there um those social identities though it's interesting because when there are things like sports teams we can kind of laugh at them ha 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 like you don't have anything to do with that like you won sure you did right and great um but when people we start breaking it down to more fundamental identities for who people are, people get real squirrely and uncomfortable with it, right? Like, mm. what's what do what glory do I get reflected off of my identity as, say, a white academic woman, right? And mm. what failures, what things do I separate myself from as part of my group? When do I want to be seen as an individual and not as a part of the group? Versus when do I want to see, be seen as part of the group and being honest with yourselves about that sort of stuff, because we all have those identities. Um, but yet, particularly in the U.S., we want to be think of ourselves as individuals. Um, and so, but they're everywhere. And so, you know, you think about things like going when I've had my first kid going on like mom's groups. And all of a sudden I was part of this group of mom. And what does it mean? And some of the things that it meant I did not like. I did not want to be like that. And so then I would set my stake in the stand. Well, I'm a mom, but I'm not like that. Right. And so you start to, to distance yourself from the things you don't like. And, but that's the core of where stereotypes come from. You categorize things, you find things that make sense of the world and you move on because then I don't have to think about it anymore. Cause it all makes sense. And I guess I'm always advocating, think about it more, question yourself more, interrogate why more um and but that takes a lot of work and people don't really like to do work so Mm. i guess um particularly when it comes to their own identity 
Because if you realize that one of the reasons you felt so confident and great growing up was because everybody around you who had ever achieved anything kind of looked like you. And so if any vision and imagination in your life, you could look and say, I want to be like that. And there was nobody saying, ha, 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 that's a ridiculous thing to think about. Um, it kind of helps. Mm. But we don't like thinking about that because it's mm. hard. Well, it, I mean, it, it, char- characterizing things is is going to be you know it's inescapable every yes. every single oh. every single yeah. word that's coming out of our mouth is is like trying sorted. to embody some yeah. sorted out idea and that's terrific that we are able to do that and and create these shorthands for communicating or or behaving in life and and um yeah, there's also uh, as someone who suffers from analysis paralysis there's <laughs> there there are tremendous costs to there wanting are. to just sit around and weigh everything and there scrutinize are. every little thing and before making um a decision yeah. so uh, so if i don't it's almost like people need to strive for more accurate and more flexible categories. Yeah, but but that's right though. Yeah, that word. Why can I not say that word? Because we just talked about characterizations and categorizations and all those things. No, I think you're like you can't. So it was flippant of me to say. Oh, I don't think. I think it was. I think it was. uh, I think it was right on. I'm. I'm just. I'm just saying. Like, what's the solution? Part of that is one reason why you talked about kind of how much more effective it is to kind of have a diverse group or a diverse room. That's one of the ways it makes it more effective when you have a group of people making decisions together is because you don't have to interrogate everything because someone else is thinking about it from a different way. You just have Mm -hmm. to make yourself flexible and open to the idea you might be wrong, and Mm -hmm. that maybe that's the real barrier is. Um, the, the social cost, the psychological cost of being wrong Mm -hmm. and how little we actually, I think, prepare kids and ourselves to, to live in that space. We value being right a lot. Um, but we don't necessarily, I think, give the kids, you hear people talking about like resilience, but I don't like that word necessarily because, you know, I think again, it talks about it like this is personal thing. Some people are more resilient as opposed to my, the fact that my daughter has, you know, the parents doing this, that, and the other and live here means she's of course going to be way more resilient to failure because I'm always here to pick her up and, you know, she's well fed and all that sort of stuff. So, but I think the idea of resilience is right, which is when you fail, can you pick yourself back up? But even more than that is, can you feel safe to say, I don't know? Can you feel safe to say I was wrong and then actually change it, not just do the thing we all do, which is, I'm sorry, I was wrong, but then actually don't do anything different. Um, and that's, I think, when you when you talk to people in businesses and stuff like that, it's the hardest thing you ask leaders that people want their leaders to be able to do, but that people have never associated with leadership before, admitting you were wrong, admitting you were going to grow and that you changed, um, which is probably the biggest thing that I look for and whether someone is a can be an effective leader is can they take in new different information can they adapt um and and some companies don't like they've started calling it can you be agile which just means can you do different things than the way you did it before um but because they don't want to admit can you admit you were wrong doesn't fly as well in their strategic management groups but that's all it is can i adapt and go a different direction when i realize i was wrong or that the world changed 
That's what I love talking, uh, why I love talking with scientists, why I, I wish more of the world appreciated scientific kind of critical thinking, because I often will ask an another reason why I don't just cite people's papers or whatever is because I'll, 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 I'll cite, I'll read about someone's work and then tell them the work that they wrote five years ago <laughs> and, and like and 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 like present it like it's fact or something like and they're like oh actually yes. uh, we do that all the time <laughs> uh, let's walk that back a little bit we've actually learned a little and we're the scientists worst. say i don't know more than more than anyone um too i i think it will be it'll be hard for I think it will be hard for politicians and corporate. I I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not that hard of a change. <laughs> like, I I, I think people won't take to it that easily. They'll be like, uh, I I could be wrong, but I think I should be in charge of everything. <laughs> so you know, I this is a Which really is good a baby point, step. This is a really good point though because I I said this at the beginning of the pandemic, and I had someone ask me kind of like, you seem like you're adapting well, and I'm like, I mean. No, but I'm really good at faking it. But however, I think one thing that set me up for this sort of uncertain situation better is I'm really good at my academic training has trained me to be very good at being like, I don't know the answer to that. And I can sit in that uncertainty, that discomfort of uncertainty for a little bit of time. I can feel comfortable asking people who know more than me and listening to them and also asking the right questions. And we don't, those aren't things we train like regularly right with everybody but they're super important and one thing that like, like i look like look for in politicians is like keep tell me something that a mistake you made and what you would do different and i liken it to the weakness question and which i hate because i always think about when you ask in interview questions what's your biggest weakness it's people usually spin around like i work too hard right they turn it into this like <laughs> yeah. ridiculous positive and so I look for those answers when you ask that question. But I always want to know, when did you have to, when did you not know something? And what would you do about it? Like, who would you ask? How would you make that decision? And then things like, so when you're coming up with, with when I help companies, for instance, come up with interview questions to interview top leaders, I often have them talk about, tell me about a time that you didn't know the answer. What'd you do? Because I want to know that they know how to navigate in uncertain waters and they know how to trust people's expertise and analyze whether they deserve their expertise. Mm. I'll say, you know, tell me about a time you were wrong and what you did to fix it. Because I want to know that they're humble enough to be able to bring a team through that moment, right? And not arrogant that they're going to isolate people. And so then those people, the good people, the ones who are right are going to leave because you didn't respect them in the mm. first place. So those are the things like when I ask questions about it because it's so important because that's how we actually live and, you know, breathe in the world. Like that's how we actually get stuff done. If you ask people who, who are the most creative, innovative groups, you have to feel safe to be wrong, to try something because otherwise you get stuff like the biggest disasters. There's a documentary out on like the Challenger disaster, which I haven't seen yet, but I've heard a lot about. I haven't and seen it either. I bet there's a bunch of O-ring talk in there. Oh, right? I bet there's exactly. a whole lot of O-ring talk. I bet there's a whole lot of media push to have this right? space parade. It's all, that... but it's all faulty decision making, like pressures right. and decision making, and the people not feeling comfortable because of expertise. People not feeling safe speaking up. People not be 
scared to admit they're wrong, scared to put a pause <laughs> on it. Like it's all these things. And then you end up with the worst outcome ever possible, which is the loss of life. And, you know, but it comes from these really big decision-making flaws that we can see replicated all over the place. Yeah. Oh my, I'm thinking of that. Uh, there, there's some, there's some black box recording, um, from a flight that went down. That was, they, they had to retrain. What was it? It was some Asian airline where the co uh, because of the cultural variations, the, the, the co-pilots, um, you know, it, it's frowned upon for them to question right. the, the, mm -hmm. the pilot. So you have to create and a so whole, there's this like horrifying culture. black box of the co-pilot being like, um, <laughs> do you see that mountain of of ahead there? Like, no, <laughs> before. But but that's you know, there's a study that is by a woman named Robin Ely at Harvard Business School. And she called the oil rig study because she went down, um, she did like this qualitative ethnographic research on oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico about 20 years ago. And she was investigating. So on oil rigs, people go and they work like six months out of the year. And you go to the oil rig in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and you work for six months. And then you have to make enough money to last you for the rest of six months. And a lot of people down and deep south down that area, those are the jobs they work. And this company on this oil rig did the safety culture change where they empowered everybody on because oil rigs very dangerous, as we've seen. Right. They can explode, like make movies about it and all that sort of stuff that happens. And they empowered everybody on this oil rig to be able to shut it down. So if you saw a fire or anything, you could press the button because every time you shut it off, you're losing like a million dollars a minute or something. I don't know the numbers, but a lot of money. And so they were always really like, don't you dare shut it down unless you have to. And so no one would shut it down because they knew they would get in trouble. So what they changed was that everybody is empowered to do it. So if you saw the CEO of the company walking down the steps without a hard hat, you could stop him and tell him to put a hard hat on. Like mm -hmm. they had to go through all these safety culture. And what was cool about that was not only did performance increase, you know, all this sort of stuff mm. do better, but gender norms got better. Mm. Because... I, uh it created this less toxic masculinity, right? Less, the more greater ability to be humble, right? Mm. To be unassuming. And it also ended up becoming like the top place that the oil rig workers wanted to work mm. because it was safe. They knew they were going to come home, right? So all mm. these things ended up being beneficial for the company because they empowered, they made it psychologically safe for mm. employees to speak up. It's a really, really cool study. And if you search Robin Ely oil rig study, you'll get a whole bunch of really easily accessible, well-reasoned um, articles about it. But hmm. um, it always stuck with me because it showed how many of, the, of these things are sort of inextricably linked. Safety, gender norms, um, organizational performance. Like these aren't all separate things, which come hmm. back to what you were saying before, which is it's not just do it because it's the right thing to do, but because it's better. Yeah. Yeah. I, huh. I, I, as I'm thinking about like how 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 do we create more of that environment, I also thought about the opposite side of it, which is like comedians admit failure. <laughs> uh, uh, like we we way too indulge it. Like people are like, oh oh, will you please? T we actually don't need to hear about all of your failures. Can can you <laughs> like and and they aren't. 
uh, you know, some of them are, are have an incredible work ethic, but a lot of comedians are comedians because they wouldn't be able to hack it in most other occupations, including myself. I don't even know how, like, if I if I went into an interview and they're like, what's what's one of one of your weaknesses? I'd be like, one. Do we only have time for one? First of all, and then your I'm humor would very... be a positive for you. See, yeah. would say, oh, sense of humor, self-deprecating, great. <laughs> Yeah, I barely made it to this interview. I often, <laughs> I often despise existence. No one's fault. It just is what it is. But I often despise it. Like that's not, that's not. Uh, is that I, a common trait amongst so. stand-up comics? Because yeah, you know, it's not I mean, unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but and you guys get to use your life as your subject so i i think we get i think there's some pavlovian conditioning going on where we get (laughs) rewarded a little too much for indulging a little too much into like the darker aspects of of life and then start embodying that more than what is actual reality Right, like yeah, Hemingway yeah. drinks himself to oblivion so he can write about the dog. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's something <laughs> like that going on with with comics, but um, so uh, so uh, we we were talking about um, um, uh, early on, um, you know what? I'm just gonna. I don't need a whole build up to this question. I'm just gonna <laughs> ask it. I ask the longest questions. It's insane. Some people are driven crazy by it. Other people like me for it. So we'll f- I haven't, <laughs> I haven't made a decision yet. Best. So, <laughs> so here's uh here it is. Um, Cross culturally, are there are there any um, cultures uh, that that you see um, uh, some distinctly different practices or just cultures that that lead to more um gender equity in the workplace i mean it's a continuum so there are some i think we often talk about the scandinavian countries i remember i said one of the reasons i got into studying work family stuff was because it's so related to gender and um you know there are some countries sort of in scandinavia who offer more work like parental leave and you have to there's parental leave that's just for the dads and you have to use it or it's gone and so you get more dads who will spend a whole year at home and that equalizes some of these sorts of things um that you know we don't see in the united states because we don't have the policies to sort of support that um and so you know if you have if you have to take the year or it's gone and it's paid like most people are like, it would be ridiculously stupid if we didn't take the year, right? Like, why would we not take the year? Um, and so you see some changes in that. It has some some negative effects in terms of, so women's labor force participation will increase because they're more likely to stay in the workforce, um, but they might have, it doesn't necessarily close a gender wage gap. Like there's, it's just a really stubborn problem because there's a lot of patriarchal cultures um, and a lot of of things and and some of this sort of homogenization of leadership due to sort of multinational companies and stuff just take those same bits and spread them all around and um you know one of the things that's harder so one of the things i'm researching now is on how couples negotiate so when a lot of people are in couples and um 
you know, they make decisions not just for themselves about their jobs, but they have to, you know, I'm not going to take this promotion you give me without talking to my spouse about it. I'm just not going to do that, right? Um, if, if I want my relationship to continue, I'm not going to do that, I guess. Um, and so a lot of times companies are just now, ex- the only time they really pay attention to that is if you're asking them to move overseas, which is a problem because people ask their partners about all kinds of things. I need to work late. Um, you know, all these things that I think companies take into consideration when they're going to give promotions, when they're going to move people overseas. And you see those same sort of norms kind of percolate throughout lots of different countries that mm-hmm. have sort of similar like um, connections, commercial connections. Sure, sure. Um, but it is a continuum. And so the, the policies that people put into place matter, um, you know, but you do you see it a lot of it linked to who raises the kids, who does the household labor um, and the fact that most of our sort of the way that our current system is set up is really out of that industrial revolution where people men instead of being you talked about the agrarian revolution, right, where families worked farms together. So everybody worked, right? Everybody was doing the sort of jobs. Yes, you know, the man took care of most of the decision-making based on religious, per- whatever those sort of reasons why those things came up. But ultimately, I mean, they were all working. They were all doing stuff, right, um, on these sort of working-class farms. Industrial Revolution, you had men leave and go. And so all of a sudden, these were separate spheres, work and home. And so – the home life then for the sort of ideal family was you had a woman who took care of the household and all of the things there and that's her domain and he goes off and he works and that's his domain and that sort of mentality as rare as it was for people to actually achieve because most families were not able to have the sort of stay at home you know leave it to beaver sort of lifestyle it still became this ideal and so the reality of us is the vast majority, if you are in a couple, which a lot of people aren't, the vast majority, if you are in a couple, is that you're sharing, you're both working. So you both have to try to figure out how to make this happen. But yet in the back of your mind is this ideal where, you know, maybe somebody should stay at home and take care of the kids. Because, I mean, part of that is because childcare is so expensive and it's so difficult to get high quality. And it just all filters in together and makes it so hard. And we see the same problems like everywhere because a lot of it is wrapped into this idea about you know, so I'll I'll say this that whole adage it takes a village to raise a child people laugh at it a lot but it actually is indicative of just how difficult it is to sort of do all the things mm-hmm. that you know raising kids even if you if you're child free right and you don't want children which is completely valid and reasonable the future children matter Right. You're going to work with them. They're going to be leaders one day. They're going to be paying taxes. They're going to be voting like they were all connected. And so I like to say that, you know, it's our inability to see those connections um, that makes it hard for us to create policy within companies, but also outside of companies. So the political scientists you bring on some point in time talk about um, because we don't where it's really hard for us to see how those connections were very much a, this doesn't affect me in my individual space. Um, is there difficult? You see that individualism fluctuate across cultures a lot more, I think. Um, and so the countries again, who have more of a collectivistic sort of look tend to have a greater like child care and parental leave sort of policies in place, which do does make it easier for women to be in the workforce as much as men. Hmm. Um, so, uh- 
before we wrap up, I I would love to just get into a little more about your your work about um uh about gender um conflict and negotiations at home. Yeah, yeah. This is something that uh holy cow uh, uh, we could all um uh another very important thing we could all benefit from. So I have my significant other. We're going to, I'm like, Hey honey, I want to move to Scandinavia for this job because (laughs) science is always blabbing about how great Scandinavia. Scandinavia. (laughs) (laughs) Won't it be weird if we find out that there's like something, there's like some real shady. Yeah. There's like human sacrifice going on or something. Great census work, but they do human sacrifice mm, yeah. terrific record keeping but they <laughs> do throw people in volcanoes still uh <laughs> so just, just for pure just just for informational purposes for transparency. <laughs> yeah. um uh so uh so you have some uh some tips on on gender negotiation yeah talk a little no, bit about so, your work yeah so um you know, it's funny of all this work, we actually have a paper that we're working on right now uh, that looks at negotiation during COVID when people were sent home for the first time. It's it's not out. It's not published yet, but um, give, yeah, give us I'll, a scoop. Yeah, I'll give you a scoop of it. So we looked at people who were sent to work from home for the first time, you know, when they were like, hey, everybody, don't come back to work tomorrow. Now you have to work from home for an indefinite period of time. So we looked at people for whom that was true. And that both of their partner, both them and their partners had to work from home. Um, And, you know, we looked at 230 some couples, heterosexual couples, because we were looking at gender differences and it made it easier to look at heterosexual couples. Um, And what we found is that the vast majority of them were negotiating over very, what what we would consider very small things. So a lot of times we talk about, oh, we're going to talk about our philosophies and we're going to talk about our values. And these couples have been together a long time. They're not having big, long, drawn out negotiations about their values, right? They're talking about who gets the good chair today because Mm. I have a meeting and I would like the good chair or things like, I, we need to determine who gets to go to the bathroom because the bathroom's right next to my office and I don't want my coworkers to hear the toilet flush. Like these are the things that they're, that are, that are taking up their energy. And what we found was that, you know, the individual preferences they had for keeping their lives separate or letting work and family sort of intermesh, um, too much of a good thing. So if you were too similar, it was actually bad. Um, because you wanted the same things at the same time. And so a lot of these ideas about similarity is you you have the same beliefs and agreements, and so you don't even have to negotiate because you just, it's all very zen and we're on the same page, but not when it's, okay, we both have to get our job done, and I want quiet and you want quiet, but we can't both get it because, you know, we're living in a small apartment trying to do our work. Um, and that the vast majority of folks didn't have the resources they need to be able to do that. So they were dealing with poor Wi-Fi. That was a lot of it. Poor space, poor quiet, less time because they had to figure out how to do stuff. And that this particularly hit women hard, that in most households, um, women had to negotiate more competitively. They had to take a more self-interested view than their, than their partners had to take because they weren't getting what they needed, because the assumption was in the household, you know, that the default, right, was different than what you had to fight for. Um, and that men, when they did negotiate, were more likely to get what they needed to get their job done and remain more engaged. And so this is in your kind of ostensibly egalitarian couples, right, which were 
both dual career. We controlled for how much money each partner made. We controlled for whether they telecommuted before, how many kids they had, like all that sort of stuff. And so there is something still fundamental about gender that's mm. that's affecting these couples, that's making it more difficult for women in the exact same context that men are put in to get what they need to do their jobs. Maybe that is something to do with the marital state. Maybe as soon as we get in these heterosexual relationships, we all revert back to whatever our parents did. Maybe it's something weird about what what you know heterosexual relationships do to us. Maybe it is you know what in a crisis we rely on sense making that pulls from these gender norms in society. Maybe it's you know has to do with people's work roles. But regardless, what we what we found was really interesting was that women had to fight harder and got less even when negotiating with someone who they loved and wanted to stay in a relationship with. Um, and our, our kind of suggestions to companies were like, first and foremost, don't assume that the small things don't matter. Mm. Things like chairs, good webcams, Wi-Fi hotspots, like the small wins. You don't have to remake your whole culture to actually f- help people tangibly in that moment. Oh, um, it's, 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 you know what's going to break people it's not the it's not it's not covid it's 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 not the isolation it's not the the social strife it's not the election year it's not every everything that everyone thinks it is it's it issues are are what's going to break humanity and if it weren't for it issues we probably wouldn't be all going crazy oh my gosh the wi-fi situation in our household (laughs) oh my yes gotta get that ethernet i know i'm like i need i need to plug in you gotta plug in yeah no, but that's but that's the thing. And we talked to companies. They're like, yeah. oh, we didn't think they could take their chair home, their ergonomics. Because think about so think about your modern company. How many millions of dollars a lot of your big corporations have put into ergonomics and wellness? Mm-hmm. But it's all if you're at the campus. We have yeah. your nice chairs. Set your chair to the right height, and we have your ergonomic carpal tunnel stuff. Who's I'm this character? I would buy a chair from this lady. I, I like I like ergonomic chair lady character yes, that you just right? stepped Thank in. Thank you. Here, put your chair. But I'm sitting on my couch, with, you know, yeah. like trying to figure this out. I don't know. All I'm saying is a lot right, of these right. things that companies have done, they've forgotten their telecommuters, they've forgotten their workers. And so in a crisis, they're not as agile as they like to think they are. You can send people home, but then what's happening to them at home? Yeah. Like it's just because they're at home doesn't mean it's not your business anymore because you're still asking them to work like all the time, probably mm-hmm. longer than you asked them before. But, oh, they're, they've got laptops. They're good. No, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. So, um, yeah. And we also thought about negotiation, like how we teach people to negotiate. It's usually how do you negotiate over salary? How do you get more money? Right. Like you were just saying, like, how do I go in and ask for more money? And I'm going to play that role. But we don't talk to people about how do you talk to your spouse about your career? We don't actually have – we don't prepare people for those conversations. And how many young people are like, we'll figure it out when we get married. Oh, no, 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 you won't. It does not get easier. And we don't, we don't give people the tools too much. We just gloss over the hard parts like we're yeah. in a movie, a lifetime movie. Yeah, you just need a book on how to like – 
be yeah. more passive aggressive and and resentful. Move to the uh, Midwest. Like, may, and make <laughs> promises that you don't don't keep. Smile when you don't mean it. Yeah, it's fine. Just say you're fine all the time and roll your eyes behind a back. No, just I'm, I'm, we're in the South. We're very good at that too. Yeah. Your heart. Oh yeah, there was. I grew up in a lot of that. Believe me. Um, all right, last. Last, last, last things. Um, it's two things. It's a two-parter, and they're big. <laughs> you can make it. You can take one or both, and you can make what you want of them. Oh, one something that that um, females. Um, uh, your your research might show that females can possibly do to advocate for themselves in whether it be at home, work, academia, wherever, um, and uh, ba based on these assumptions that there there are these um, uh, differences in, in the way that females are being treated in an average workplace. And then two, say you're a very reasonable, say I want to start a company and, and make a bunch of money. You have an announcement? By by the way, I I, I I don't, but I do work with nothing but nothing but females, uh, and I do I, I I produce my own shows and stuff. Um, but um, uh, but but say I had like an actual, uh, I'm going to invent a thing. I'm going to start a company. Hey, this incorporating ladies into my business stuff sounds like a real swell idea. I, I saw your research. It turns out that I'll make more profit. If I, how do I go about creating an environment that's more conducive to um, the female workforce? So, boy, those are two heady questions. But, yeah, yeah I'll go for it. So, I think convincing – So. One of the things I like to say is, like I said earlier, that there are groups of men being being unfairly treated just like women. And if women can find those allies amongst men and, and cooperate with them to advance their interests, to push back on times where you see people make assumptions that are wrong, um, to advocate for one another, to be each other's team members, um, to, to role model those sorts of things. I think that's good. If you're a woman who's quote unquote made it to um, remember that your path might not be the only path and to support women who choose different paths. Because oftentimes, you know, I like to say, oftentimes men get more paths to choose to success than women do. And that there are lots of different ways that men have gotten to be successful. Um, and we kind of allow that individuality in a way that we're a little more prescriptive with women because the we're so risk averse to lose somebody. And so we're like, don't take that risk, just stay the course. We know this works. Um, so women who have made it can be, you know, supportive of different paths that women, women take. Um, and I think women understanding, so understanding that even though the workplace values, oftentimes values these masculine sorts of things like being dominant and being aggressive, that women can often, you know, um, experience backlash when they do those things. Um, and so you want to be careful about that. And one thing that we know from research, for instance, is that women negotiate um, really competitively. They often don't get what they want because they're like, people are put off by women acting that way. 
Um, but if you phrase it in a way that is more benevolent, like I'm not doing this for me, I'm doing this for all the women who will come behind me, right? Like in some way, that's a bigger, broader, you know, making it seem more communal, mm-hmm. more collective, I that see. that can be more effective for women to play into those stereotypes as opposed to fight against them. So I think there's the play into it to try to slowly change things. And then there's the find your allies and advocate against it um, mm. to change the norms. In terms of companies, if you're talking from companies from top down, a lot of this is representation. And so I mentioned social role theory before, like representation, it seems silly. Like, why do you need to see that? It's easy to say if you've always seen yourself. Right? Like, it's easy to say, because again, it's about the imagination of what's possible and how we don't you know, we don't cut that off before people have had a, a chance to envision what they want their life to be like and to take their ambition and take it away from, from you. Um, some people are, um, you know, I'm like antagonistic. If you tell me I can't do something, that's precisely the thing I'm going to want to do. But there are a lot of people who aren't like that. And so, you know, making sure that you are fighting to be more representative. The other thing along those lines is think about how you define performance. Because this is the thing I often talk about in companies when I talk to them. I'm like, well, what do you actually value? Show me who you promote and I'll show you what you value. Show me who you pay and I'll show you what you value. Because you can say a whole bunch of mess, but what really comes down to is who are you promoting? So if, you, if you're like, well, why are the – I always find it baffling when, when kind of corporate leaders say to me, we don't know how it got this way. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know how it got this way? Like you're in charge of it. You can change it. You right. just – if it's not changing, it's because, you know – you don't want to. And I hate when I say it that way because people get real defensive. But if there's a lot of people, I've seen business leaders put their whole, like all their political capital, all their will on the line to launch a new product or make a strategic change or do something new and different innovatively. But when it comes to like promoting women, mm, I don't know. I like taking chances, but (laughs) come on. I'm I'm not crazy. Right. And, but then I'm like, well, why? Right. And it's because a lot of times fundamentally they're scared of, of like, they know a lot of times men know if you're associated by, with women or being a champion for women or that you will get cascade, like still one of the biggest insults for men is you're acting like a girl or I see men who stick up for women. Oh, you're being a white knight or, Oh, you want to like all this sort of stuff online. I'm like, bro, maybe he's just cool. Like maybe, maybe he just likes women because we're people and we're kind of fun and cool. And maybe he doesn't want to sleep with me. He just wants to be my friend because that's a thing that grownups do with one another. Did you know? And unfortunately, you know, you see that sort of fear and we, companies don't hold themselves accountable for it. And so I often say, we often say like with diversity and inclusion, hold people's accountable for representation as you hold them accountable for earnings. Hold them as accountable for women being in leadership because if you don't, what you're saying is this. You're saying, I'm okay with there not being as many women. Like, be clear about your assumptions. If there aren't women in your organization, why? If you're like, well, they don't wanna be here, why do they not wanna be here? Like, or is your assumption is that your company sucks so women don't wanna be here or because you think we're not capable or because you think that we're fundamentally different on some sociological way that we don't like science, like be honest about what your assumptions are. Cause we can't actually address them unless you're honest. And usually when you st- I start asking why like that, we get to that really uncomfortable place where they have to say like, well, women have babies and they want to stay home with their babies. Cause that's natural and what women want to do. Right. And I'm like, no, 
no, that's not right. Because mm. these women just spent their whole careers gaining a whole bunch of student loan debt to get their master's degrees. And 95% of them are back in the workforce within a year of having a baby, but they're just not coming back to you. Mm-hmm. And then they fire me. But that's okay because <laughs> I, the message is through, right? That, yeah. you know, be honest. Yeah. I yeah. guess is what I would say. Yeah. That's terrific. I that's love a it. real positive note to leave it on, isn't it? I'm pro honesty. I love it. That was and said very well. I I uh, I like and am intimidated by by women <laughs> because they have greater verbal fluency. Why don't I like women because I'm scared I'll sound stupid when I'm around them. That's why with my thick-tongued, clumsy <laughs> vocabulary. There's a research question right there. We just studied that one. <laughs> um, uh, all right, Beth, you were out absolutely awesome this is uh, uh, such cool important work fun. that you're doing um i i'm optimistic that that maybe not as as fast as uh, uh yourself and many people would like but that things will start moving ish in the direction that uh, uh that you're you're hoping people are steering towards i i think that that's happening um, hey, I so like we'll I said, see. I'm a glass half full with sparkles type of gal. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Um, all right, Beth, you're awesome. Uh, let's do it again um, sometime. Let me know if you have any other cool research or whatever that you want to share, and uh, and we'll be in touch. And maybe next time I'm in Iowa, um, after all this, I'll I'll hit you up to do when one of my live shows We're allowed to talk to people something. again. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Definitely. That's great. Yeah. All right. Terrific. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I just wanted to say that this podcast was recorded on September 21st of 2020. And uh, I sometimes go in streaks of getting banks of them recorded. And I'm always working on various projects. And I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not the most um, balanced, regimented person. So I tend to record a bunch and wait a while and record a bunch more and, and with people's schedules and everything else. All of that is to say is that please keep in mind um, anytime you're listening uh, to this show and it's new and it just came out and you're listening to it the day that it dropped, that it may have actually been recorded months ago. So that being said, when we when we go on talking about, you know, whatever uh, aspect of the research and you're sitting there wondering, huh, I wonder why they aren't mentioning the coup <laughs> or <laughs> like, really, you, you have a you have a siege on the Capitol building and not even not even so much of a mention. It's, it's because these uh, are recorded sometimes long in advance and other times they're recorded it's it's a it's a grab bag around here schedule wise um and uh so i thought i'd mention that because if you are looking to stay up to date with my various thoughts on life one twitter is something that i've been doing like pretty reliably that's where i'm like uh, uh political I, I try to i try to be um, a lot more like apolitical on on this show, um, 
and 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 so Twitter, if you want to see that aspect of things, just been pretty interesting through COVID, actually. And then Instagram, I, I do like that social media. You could have all these different kind of aspects of who you are. Instagram is like more lighter stuff, and I put like highlights um, of the show and stuff. I, I don't I don't post as much, um, but I maybe keep the quality level a little higher and keep things a little lighter there. And uh, and then uh, Facebook, I use a little bit here and there. Maybe I'll use it more. I'm always experimenting. But the Discord, I wanted to mention that the Discord channel, and I'll, I'll get some information to you uh, next week, but it, it was for Patreon subscribers only. And now I'm uh, I've decided that I think that I'm going to make it public just because I want it to be a richer, fuller community um, and I want people to... At, at the time, I put it behind a paywall for a few reasons. One, to kind of incentivize people to support me on Patreon, of course, which I'm like, I don't know, that'll be a goal for uh, 2021 to hopefully figure out the um, how, how to do more of the... I very much appreciate all of the support on Patreon and would love to have more of it. Um, but getting my brain to get up on top of what's the best idea to have a regular this weekly thing and that, uh, I, I don't, I need to work on that a bit. Um, admittedly, that's a big goal for 2021. And, and so your support is very much, but it's, uh, your support is paying for this show to happen is, is what your uh, support is doing. And it's very much appreciated. Um, but I, I should be opening that Discord uh, to the public pretty soon as well. So yeah, and I, I might also be doing some uh, some solo episodes. Makes me nervous, guys. I get nervous about record. I, I actually tried to record one recently, and then the world changes so fast. And I have no problem like I have no problem riffing with a guest, interviewing a guest, being a guest on other shows, and I have no problem putting together a show for stand-up, but just to riff into a microphone for an hour is something that uh, that makes me, um, uh, I don't know, it's just like this little bit of, um, what is anxiety, maybe, it's, uh, something, something stops me, it's not even so much I'm nervous, there's just something, something that gets the old mental hurdles activated a little more and it just makes me like not get up the you know, the ambition to pull the trigger to hit record of his oh, self-doubt or whatever um over overthinking everything rather overthink things than underthink things don't you think also uh, with, with uh with all the self-doubt stuff Boy, some I've been thinking about that lately, and I'm like, man, I'm. Some of that is, uh, although it was, um, you know, sometimes overboard and hard to work through in life. I will say that there's there's definitely been advantages. There's there's aspects of of just the questioning all the guy. I don't question everything perfectly. Um, and you should hopefully be skeptical of skepticism too sometimes. But uh, I do, I think that 
people that question themselves uh, often ask better questions, or at least that comes along with it a little bit. And I do think that uh, just to comment just generally on some of what's going on with the state of the world is that what I would look forward to and hope to see in a bit of silver lining is that this is a, a little bit of a humbling experience um, uh, for some of us and, and, and maybe, maybe even humanizing a little more. And I, I think that, uh, I think that it's not just the dehumanizing of, of outgroups that is, is the problem. It's, it's sometimes just elevating our own, um, our, our own you know, ego, whatever else are, uh, because there's just so much prideful ignorance out there. There's just so much exceptionalism. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's a lot of this, like, well, we don't want to dehumanize. So let's like cheerlead and raise, raise more people up. And that's an important aspect of it too. But at the same time, just humbling ourselves, um, a, a little bit is something that, uh, I hope happens when we when we are kind of forced to look at all of the things going on in the United States right now. We'll see. Um, in the meantime, I'll tell you on a personal, you know, whether like you agree with this approach or it's appropriate or you know whatever else. I have been having a heck of a time just dunking on Mega. Uh, I mean, just dunking on them. I mean. No more, like, well, we better be careful, be nice for, uh, you know, the people that voted against nice, against understanding. Um, I'm not talking about Republicans. I'm not talking about being conservative. I'm talking specifically mega hat wearing, let's storm the Capitol. This is... We're putting all our chips on orange. Uh, <laughs> this is my identity. Forget everything that I've believed in life. Screw my religious beliefs, my family, anything else. Uh, to worship this absolute buffoon and now I'm so dug in I can't get myself out of it. Whoo! Oh boy. I like seeing that get humbled a little bit, and I don't mind. I don't mind taking the piss a bit, because it's kind of the mode of communication that they voted for, that they stand, that they stood for, and boy, I always had it in for bullies my whole life, and I gotta say, it feels darn good to mock. <laughs> these just <laughs> such prideful ignorance guys it's really incredible so and yeah and then you get to look inward and see like well what aspects 
of of myself kind of I see in that mirror and all of, all of those things so yeah we can all do that we can all work on ourselves and sometimes I do think that when everything else fails we we stand up and go nah as a society mm, nope there's there's a there's certain things that we simply uh, do not uh, accept and uh, white supremacy is a big one. Um, and so anything, even if you think that's an unfair characterization, well, these are the same people that say where there's smoke, there's fire. I, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to hear some, <laughs> I don't, I don't need to hear about how I'm, uh, unfairly prejudiced against the people most advocating for profiling in the world. Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I stepped away from social media as soon as Trump took office. Have my assistant take over, just post a show info and stuff. I thought, I don't want to be negative. I don't want, oh, well, you know, okay. This, this is the world, this is the way that, it, you know, what do I, maybe I'm wrong about this. And so it's been fun to get back on there and really roast some just uncurably stubborn fools. Not for their capabilities, but for their willingness, by the way. This is what I like about this show. I don't think... The way that I would define stupid is not, uh, look at this, this is already turning into a solo episode. Gosh, when I get blabbing, it's just the starting thing, you know? I just have trouble hitting record in the first place, but once you get blabbing. So, anyway, I in terms of like, when you toss around a word like calling someone else stupid. So when I do that. And I hope when you do that too. Like I call myself stupid, say, for jumping off a thing that's too high and breaking both my feet or whatever. We all do stupid things, right? And we can forgive, blah, blah, blah. blah. But when I, when I call someone stupid, my usual definition of that in, in my mind, what, what I'm saying, it's not, I'm not saying someone isn't capable like they don't, they don't have the cognitive abilities of understanding something. I would sure feel bad if, uh, you, you know, we don't do whatever we can to help, um, to help people um, that that are have some deficit in, in um, you know, some way like that. What I'm talking about is a as a attitude is a willingness. I think that that uh, stupidity. I think a really stupid thing to do is to is to show an unwillingness to learn and to have that be a part of your identity, and to be proud of that and to think that makes you tough or something like that. And so uh, I spend a whole lot of time thinking about how to poke holes in that. And uh, so follow me on social media if you want to see me. Uh, you know, with questionable judgment, um, <laughs> dunking on a bunch of people 
And well, I'll tell you, I've been, for example, I've been, I've been warning people about these um, uh, conspiracy uh, um, zealots uh, w within the psychedelic community that I love and I care about. By the way, I have mega friends, family, people that I care about. I'm from Wisconsin. I've, you know, it's an issue I've dealt with for 40 years. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm sure to, I'm sure to anyone outside of the psychedelic advocacy community, and like, why, why are you so, uh, worked up about, um, the conspiracy, uh, folks out there that, and, and it's because these zealots or addicts or fanatics, it's not, they're not theorists. Uh, they're, they're quite bad ones. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, they're a real uh, danger to moving forward in terms of the amount of science denial, the, the bidding for uh, uh, power over the, their, not, their way of thinking is the, is the almighty truth, is, is the dogma of it. And, and to do that, uh, feeling the need to attack uh, things like academia, things like the scientific method, um, and uh, and in doing so, you know, creating a lot of the issues that we've seen with the anti-masking and and uh, you know, obviously, there's everyone should have legitimate concerns about any form of medicine whatsoever. But, uh, you know, the, the anti-vax people, the, the people that from, from get-go, I don't, I don't trust vaccines with no real reason to, you know, the, to, to think uh, vaccines cause autism or something like that. And, and to think uh, vaccines are poison or microchipped or, or that sort of thing. Just, just from, from Jump Street and there's nothing you can show me. That will prove me otherwise. Um, those people have been a real issue, and they've they've been getting more. I I know from making a documentary about psychedelics and getting messages from people all the time, um, which I don't respond to, by the way. Um, when when you write me with your crazy theories about uh, your whatever QAnon whatnot. But uh, but I've been warning people, and now we have Horn Guy uh, in in the Capitol, and Mega scratching their head like, "Who's this? What? That's not a Trump voter. Oh, it is. That's absolutely a Trump voter. You, believe you me, I've been. I I don't I don't need to deal with Mega people on my social media. There's like there's like three Mega people left on all of my. <laughs> social media, you know, like maybe a, maybe a aunt or something like that, that uh, <laughs> cringes at everything that I post. Uh, but no, no, it's the, it's the conspiracy, uh, types that I hear the most of and, and, uh, are a real, real issue. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's people weren't, Maybe we're never going to see that. And now they're seeing Horn Guy. And, uh, you know, you can't see Horn Guy uh, storm the Capitol 
and start thinking like, eh, maybe there's some mental health issues going on in this country. So hopefully some good will come out of this. I hope you guys are doing well. I've been, you know, I've been approaching this with popcorn. Um, if, if, if you've been, um, uh, if you've, if you've been anxious about what this means for the country, these are all, these are all anxieties of things that I had happen for a, for a long time. And so, you know, this is like, I already got there in many, in many ways. Um, and so it's, it's just a more entertaining version of the, of the fears that I had. So, um, so if you're just kind of coming to terms with, with some of this stuff yourself, I, uh, I'm sorry if, if it's causing you tons of stress. And I, I know from the stuff that I went through this summer, um, that, uh, uh, that stress can sure do a number on the mind and anxiety can do a number on the mind and, and, uh, it can be really, really confusing. So being on the other end of that, at least for now, um, I, I feel you. I hope you're doing okay. Um, I, I started, uh, I started going to therapy recently. I highly recommend it, but, uh, but yeah, that's all. Just thought I'd say a few things. And, um, those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are of course my favorites.